We are interviewing uh, Randy Johnson, who was the former American Board Chief of Police. And um, my name is Craig Foster, and I'm going to be asking some questions and uh, visiting with you. And so we'll just get right into it. Sounds good. The uh, The first question that I have is, are you a Utah native, and uh, where were you born and raised? I was born in Franklin, Idaho in 1950. My dad was an Air Force officer. Uh, we consider Utah home. We'd come back every summer, but I tra- traveled and lived all around the world with my father. I've been a Utah native since uh, 1968 when I came back to go to BYU, served a mission, then came back, and I've been here since then. Okay, good. And uh, perhaps you could give a brief overview of your law enforcement career, uh, what what you went through and uh, your experience with that. I'll go right into a little bit more personally, and then I'll touch on my law enforcement career. That's Thank excellent. Uh, I was the chief of police responsible for the murder investigation of Brenda and Erica Lafferty in 1984 in American Fork, Utah. It occurred on July the 24th, 1984. I was born to parents who are and were active members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I served a mission to Guatemala and El Salvador. I returned to BYU and subsequently earned my bachelor and then master's degree from Brigham Young University. While certainly flawed over the course of my lifetime, I've tried to become a better member of the church and a better follower of Jesus Christ. I'm obviously a member of the church. I've been sealed in the temple. I'm currently married to my wife, who happens to be named Brenda. Uh, We have 27 children, grand and great-grandchildren. I've held a wide variety of stake and ward callings. Uh, I'm currently the gospel doctrine instructor in my ward. I've been asked by Sharon Wright Weeks, uh, she's Brenda's sister and family spokesperson, to present a true account of the investigation of the deaths of her sister and niece and to talk about the efforts that we went to to bring to justice those persons who are responsible for those horrible murders. I'm making this effort to support the Wright family by presenting an accurate account to the organization that I understand is called Faithful Answers Informed Response Organization. I'm pleased to do so. This will be an overview of the investigation. There was approximately 1,500 to 2,000 investigative man-hours put into this case over a couple of years. There are details germane to the investigation that I won't be able to cover due to time constraints. Sharon is most knowledgeable about the Lafferty family and the relationship that Brenda had with the brothers and the family, and so she would be the person that would address the personal matters of the family. I'm mostly going to focus on the actual investigation. I have read the book, Under the Banner of Heaven, a number of years ago when it came out. I was mentioned in it by name, and I found that that contained more accurate information than does the current uh, miniseries that's operating under the same name that's on cable right now. Uh, unfortunately, with Under the Banner of Heaven, they included a lot of fundamental Mormon stuff, church groups, and so that kind of confused the Lafferty homicide investigation. But I have read the book and find it to be substantially more accurate than the miniseries that's currently out there. I find it interesting that the disclaimer 
on the miniseries says, This program is inspired by true crime events. Some characters in the program are fictional, and some scenes and dialogues are invented for creative and storyline purposes. Based upon my knowledge of the case, the parties involved, the officers under my command, and myself, I cannot recognize any actual person that I knew or came to know accurately depicted in the series. The series does not reflect the actual investigation that I oversaw, nor does it reflect the attitudes, behaviors, and conduct of me or any of my officers. It is clearly a work of fiction, as indicated by the disclaimer. I affirm that, to my knowledge, neither I nor any of my officers ever lost our personal faith. If a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Well, we did not question our beliefs or leaders as a result of the investigation. Nothing changed there. No church leader ever tried to influence us in any way during or after the investigation. I'm prepared to tell you a little bit about my background to becoming a police officer. Prior to my appointment with American Fork Police Department, I served as an officer and detective at Brigham Young University Police Department, for four years, followed by seven years with the Provo City Police Department. There I had a wide variety of specialized assignments to include patrol, SWAT, narcotics, and vice investigation, and patrol supervision. With my service at BYU and Provo, I had been assigned to investigative teams responsible for a, a goodly number of felony investigations to include homicides. I left Provo Police, Police Department to accept the Assistant Chief of Police position at American Fork. As such, I held the rank of lieutenant and was the primary police investigator for the city during the course of the time I was here. At the time of the homicides, I'd been married to my first wife, who'd been a police sergeant at Brigham Young University Police Department. She resigned from BYU as we had three young daughters. Coincidentally, my youngest daughter and Erica were the exact same number of months old and looked a lot alike. She continued to work as a part-time officer for Alpine Highland Police Department and American Fork Police Department uh, after she quit at BYU. This was the second homicide investigation that I was responsible for uh, before the Lafferty... Well, the Lafferty brothers were the second homicide investigation. The first one occurred in March 1982. There was a store clerk that was shot and killed uh, during a robbery. Uh, We had no suspects, but the... A aggressive investigation resulted in us shortly uh, identifying and arresting and prosecuting the two suspects. I learned a lot from that investigation that I'm going to use in the investigation of the Lafferty brothers. Since my arrival in American Fork, all investigations were my responsibility, and I felt the weight of that responsibility keenly. None more so than when someone was hurt or missing. The murder of Brenda and Erica raised that sense of duty to innocent victims to a new level. The store clerk's death had been a wake-up call to me and taught me a lot about the value of pressing hard in the initial hours after the serious crime occurs, and we did press hard. I'll, I'll get into that. Upon the passing of the former chief of police in 1982, I was appointed chief of police for the city. 
1984, American Fork Police Department had about 13 full-time officers and a part-time officer. We were serving a population of about 14,000 people. During the time of the investigation, my assistant chief, John Durant, was attending Quantico, Virginia, the FBI National Academy, and so he was my lead investigator, but he was not available to me throughout the course of the investigation. That left me with two detectives, a patrol lieutenant, a patrol sergeant, a patrol corporal, five officers, and one part-time officer to respond to the scene that night. You ready to start into the investigation? Yes. Okay. July 24th, 1984. It's Tuesday. It's Pioneer Day. It's a state holiday. Brenda, her husband, Alan, and 15-month-old daughter, Erica, lived in a duplex in the south side of American Fork. Alan had been at work all day on a tiling job, as I recollect, up in the Ogden area. The last time Brenda was seen alive by the neighbors was at 12.05 in the afternoon. At approximately 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the neighbors who lived in the duplex to the left side, they heard a commotion, banging, thumping, uh, loud voices, but they thought there was a TV turned on too loud or that maybe Alan and Brenda were arguing. At 7.45 came in the first report of the crime. Alan Lafferty arrived home, walked into the house, and observed his wife and his daughter, and they were both deceased. He tried to use one phone, but the phone had been cut. He went into the bedroom and made a phone call to the police department. The dispatch center located the sheriff's department, uh, immediately dispatched an officer who arrived at about 7.50, first officer on the scene. Uh, he had been told what was in there. He went in real quick to make sure that what he'd been told was accurate and the suspects were not there. And then he came back out and uh, had di dispatch notify me at home. I had just come home from a, a mile, many miles run because I was preparing for a marathon. And the dispatcher said I had a crime scene with two dead bodies. I said, okay. And I gave her a list of three or four officers that I wanted to respond to the scene initially to meet me there. And I remember thinking to myself as I'm driving to the scene, it's got to be a murder-suicide. Because mostly what happens when people die, a lot of times, it's a murder-suicide. I thought, that's okay. I could not conceive of a double homicide in American Fork, especially to a mother and a baby. Uh, American Fork seemed so safe to me. Upon my arrival, the first officer told me that the woman and child were in fact dead. He told me that the husband, Alan Lafferty, had arrived home, found his wife dead, and that he was waiting at the neighbor's house next door. Approximately 10 minutes after 8, I did an initial walk through the same scene with the first officer. I had him walk me through the crime scene. It was obvious that it had been a brutal murder of two, two innocent people. I left the initial officer guarding the residence and met with the officers that I had requested to come to the scene. They had started to arrive. I told them that what we had observed in the residence and made initial assignments. I assigned Detective Gary Caldwell, who was one of my detectives, to take the lead on this investigation and be the primary focus that I would focus through to direct the investigation. I had dispatch contact the remaining officers on my department 
all of them, and asked them to respond for assignments to the scene. At approximately 8.30, all the times I'm going to give you, I'm not going to say approximately. So about a half an hour after we arrived, I instructed Detective Caldwell and one other officer to take Alan Lafferty to the station, take his statement, and interview him for possible leads. I told Caldwell that as of that minute, Alan was the primary suspect, as so many family homicides are committed by a family member. At 9 o'clock approximately, we uh, initiated the crime scene processing. To begin the initial documentation of the scene, I had Detective Merrill Finlayson, who was our department crime scene photographer, a second full-time officer, and a part-time female officer, stay there and help me. The other officers were assigned to canvas the neighborhood, talk to the neighbors, and see what they could develop in the surrounding neighborhood. I had dispatch request the state medical examiner's on-call investigator, the office of the state medical examiner. I then called Noel Wooten, who was the county attorney, and briefed him on what we knew to that point. He said, I will send my chief deputy, Wayne Watson, who would subsequently be the primary prosecutor for Ron and Dan Lafferty. He was sent to the scene to serve as my legal advisor. I called Provo City Police Swin Nielsen and requested that he send a couple of investigators with their recently acquired VCR camera. It was this big, this big, and it rested on their shoulder, but it was the only one that law enforcement had in Utah County at the time. Uh, Sergeant George Pierpont and Officer Keith Tusher responded. I'd like to give you a little brief description of the crime scene, what it looked like from my initial walkthrough. I identified three primary areas of processing. The living room in the area of the front door. The front door opened into the living room against a wall, and then you had a, a standard living room, which was adjacent to the kitchen with the kitchen facilities and a table. There appeared to have been a very violent struggle take place behind the front door. There was blood on the back of the door, on the door handles, on the linoleum, on the walls, and there was splatterings up on the ceiling, as a white ceiling. It appeared that somebody had been beaten or assaulted violently while seated on the floor with their back to the wall behind the door. Visible on the wall at about head height, if you were seated there, was a swath of blood going back and forth as though somebody's bloody hair was being knocked back and forth in this arc. There were blood spatters on the back of the door and, as I indicated, even up on the ceiling. One of what would turn out to be Brenda's fingernails was sitting right there within reaching distance of where Brenda had been. In the kitchen, the second area, Brenda was lying on her back. She was wearing a one-piece bathing suit with a pair of shorts. Her head was lying in a large pool of blood that nearly surrounded her body. Her throat had been cut from ear to ear. She had severe bruising on her face and arms. She, she was badly beaten. She had an electrical cord that had been cut from a vacuum plane wrapped two or three times around her neck, and it was still wrapped around there. In the blood pool around the body, we observed a second fingernail. The drapes covering the back door led off from the kitchen. They were kind of torn down a little bit, and they had blood smears all over the white drapes. 
we drew the conclusion that the two fingernails torn off at, were torn off as Brenda fought for her life and the life of her baby in the area of the front door and in the kitchen. The third area of primary processing was Erica's bedroom. You walk back down the hall, Erica's bedroom, Ron and Dan's, correction, sorry, Brenda and Alan's master bedroom. In Erica's bedroom, as you walked in, the door was this way and the crib was right there against the wall. And that crib was the exact color of the crib that I had just left my 15-month-old daughter, Taryn, in when I responded to come down here. I looked over the edge of the crib, and Erica was slumped down as though she had been standing on the edge of the crib and, and crying, and she just kind of collapsed down. She had the same length of hair, the same color of hair. She was wearing just a diaper. And as far as I could tell, that was my daughter that was down in that, in that bed. I couldn't tell the difference, nor would I be able to tell for another couple, three hours before we could deal with that particular area. Her body was crumpled, as I said. Her throat, just like her mother's, was cut from ear to ear. She had no other visible wounds or bruising. At 10 o'clock p.m., we had identification of probable suspects. So that's two hours after our arrival. We've got good information. I received a call from Detective Caldwell at the station. He informed me that Alan was the brother of Dan Lafferty, who had previously ran for sheriff. A lot of notoriety, constitutionalist. All the cops in the valley knew of Dan Lafferty. Those of, the, those of us at the scene were aware of the past violent interaction that Dan had had with uh, the highway patrol. They had stopped him three times for speeding. He never appeared. They had three warrants for his arrest and Trooper Les Langford signed and they went after him. And he pulled over, took off again. He pulled over again. He unrolled his window, wouldn't get out. A trooper put his arm through the window and Dan rolled it up on him and started to drive away with the officer attached. Luckily, he went in the borrow pit and the officer came free. Dan got out and was running down the freeway, apparently, screaming for them to be witnesses. Well, did we know Ron and Dan Lafferty? Yeah, because Dan and a bunch of people went to, uh, Ron and a bunch of people went to Dan's trials and uh, created quite a disturbance. And so once I was reminded by Detective Caldwell, or this was brought to my fact that this was my, was brought to my knowledge, this was the Lafferty's, yeah, I'd heard about him quite a bit. He was charged with a number of felonies. Since he would not appear for probation, he was sentenced by the judge to 90-day evaluation in the state prison. We knew that Dan had served his time in prison and was released. Detective Caldwell also told me that Alan had reported that Brenda and Erica's life had been threatened by Ron and Dan Lafferty. President Richard Stowe, who was a stake president of the Highland Stake of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, was also threatened, as was Chloe Lowe, who was the Relief Society president when Ron and his wife Diana lived 
Diana or Diana, I'm sorry, it slips my mind. Diana. Diana uh, lived in their ward. Chloe Lowe was the Relief Society president, so she was very supportive of Diana during the course of Dan's subsequent excommunication and their divorce. Uh, Detective Caldwell and the officers who had been canvassing the area were reporting in to me, and a vehicle matching the description of a a station wagon owned by Ron and Dan had been seen by the neighbors in that area sometime between 5, correction, between 3 and 3, 345, and it was seen in the driveway once, and then it was observed to return. It was very recognizable. It was a long, older model Chevy station wagon, light green in color, had Utah plates on it, and there was a red and white ice chest on top of on top of the vehicle. So it stood out and the neighbors noticed it. This coincided coincided with the disturbance that the neighbors or the other occupants on the other side of the duplex had, had heard and the time. They had not wanted to get involved and they did not call the police, even though they had heard a disturbance. Ten thirty PM uh, attempt to locate Based upon what Allen's statement was and the information gathered by the officers, the county attorney, Noel Wooten, and Wayne Watson instructed me to enter Ron and Dan Lafferty, two unknown male suspects, their vehicle, their license, their description in the National Crime Information Computer, and to broadcast an attempt to locate in Utah and the surrounding states, which we did at about 1030. So that would have been two, two and a half hours, and we had... Good suspect information. The processing of the crime scene was conducted using the best known crime scene procedures and practices of the time. I look back now on what we have when I retired in 2017 after 46 years of law enforcement service in Utah. The DNA, the photography, the chemicals, so much more information and capabilities and tests that I wish I would have had back in those days. But nonetheless, we protected the scene, and we used the best practices we had at that time. The actual process was as follows. Starting at the front door, we photographed that area completely in first Polaroid instant film, so we've got something. In case nothing else comes out, we've got some pictures. Then we went to 35-millimeter black and white, because sometimes you can't enter color film. In courts. Then we went to 35 millimeter color and then to 35 millimeter slides and then to VCR provided by Provo City and their officers. When the state medical examiner's on call investigator arrived, Brenda's hands were covered in paper bags, small paper bags, tape shut. We wanted to protect what may have been under her fingernails or on her hands. He took a body core temperature to determine time of death. They make a slight incision. They insert a thermometer into her liver area. And based upon the temperature in the apartment, the lividity marks, the rigor mortis, he estimated that she had died between 1 p.m. and 4 p.m. that day. After that, the crime scene was documented. The kitchen crime scene was documented in the same manner as the front door. After processing the kitchen and turning Brenda's body over to the Utah State Medical Examiner, 
we would proceed to document Erica and, and her room. 11.45, Brenda was turned over to the state medical examiner who placed her in a body bag and moved her into his transportation van. July 24th, 1 a.m., this is Wednesday, we moved into Erica's room and repeated the crime scene processing. Uh, we were able for the first time to lift Brenda, lift Erica up and be able to see the actual wound. And at that point, I could see that it wasn't my daughter, but it might as well have been. Erica was released to the medical examiner for transportation, along with Brenda for autopsy. After Brenda and Erica were removed, blood samples and other physical items were seized and taken as evidence. The drains from all the sinks in the house were, were emptied, put into containers, in case the suspects had washed off their hands, blood, hair, samples, we took the drains, we took the contents thereof. The apartment was dusted for fingerprints. The following morning when the store opened, I sent an officer, purchased a brand new vacuum cleaner. And before leaving the, the scene that morning, we vacuumed thoroughly the house looking for hair and, hair and fibers for later analysis. We noted that in the backyard, the back door was not locked going out as a sliding door. And the kiddie pool had been filled earlier and there was fresh laundry on the on the line, and there was a uh, a basket you'd carry your laundry out. It looked as though Brenda had been doing her laundry. We noted that the blood smears on the drapes appeared to have the bloody imprint of a knife. If you grabbed the drapes and put the knife in it and went like this, you'd be left with a double signature there. Also, there's a lot of wiping as though somebody had wiped their, their hands on the white drapes. The pillow, there's a pillow from the master bedroom in the kitchen by Brenda's head. And one side of the pillow had uh, blood on that pillow. And subsequently, we would look at that and say, that pillow was used to smother her. Throughout the night and early morning hours, information continued to come in and was documented. Alan was permitted to leave and go home with family members. Detective Caldwell reported to me at the scene. I notified the mayor of American, American Fork, Malcolm Beck, who offered whatever support was needed. He agreed to notify the members of the city council. It's a big deal. Something like this happens in the town. It's a big deal. Mayor Beck and the city council were absolutely supportive of the police department during the investigation and allocated funds necessary for overtime, and there were hundreds of hours. Needed equipment and travel is warranted. While the evidence was being collected and the crime scene being processed, I again briefed the county attorney on scene. I met with the media who were standing all in the street. Every media outlet in the state was there and they were all standing out there in big lines with cameras and they were they had been there for a couple hours and they were prepared to stay all night and they did stay all night we could see that close coverage was going to be our life for the foreseeable future i did not give the media the name of the victims only their gender and approximate ages the media was told that the death seemed to be by a very sharp cutting instrument. Due to the extensive media coverage, I knew that the 
that Brenda's family in Idaho would shortly be contacted by the media in Idaho. Not wanting to have them receive notification from the media and not wanting them to receive it from an officer that really didn't know what had taken place, I decided that I would call the family. I called, a woman answered, and I asked if I could speak to the father, Mr. Wright. I, when he got on the phone, I slowly and clearly identified myself, told him who I was with. I told him that his daughter and granddaughter had been killed the preceding evening. I told him that we had identified the likely suspects and had released Brendan Erica to the medical examiner's office for autopsy. I answered what questions I could that he asked me. I told him to please prepare his family for probable contact from uh, news media. And I encouraged him to refer the media back to me. If they called him, I would take care of it. I also asked him to notify his extended family and to call me back any time. I told him I would keep him in, in contact, which I did. About a week after the homicide, he and his family came and met with me in my office in American Fork. But I kept him apprised of the progress of the case. 10.30 a.m., we have finished the initial process in the crime scene. We've been there for about 14 and a half hours. My officers and I have been awake for the whole, about 24 hours before that. And so I sent everybody home for a three to four hour rest break with instructions to report back at about 3 p.m. in the afternoon where we would start again. Because I firmly believe that while the, the case is hot, you push just as hard as you can until there's nothing else that you can do, and then you take the break. And so we worked that evening till approximately uh, 8 p.m., booking evidence, calling people, talking to the media, writing reports. At about 8 o'clock, we kind of reached a point where it's time to send the officers home. So I released all the officers. I sent everyone home to rest. I designated which officers I wanted back to the station first thing in the morning. And the next morning we started again. That's Thursday, July 26th at 7 a.m. Uh, we, we got uh, a multi-agency task force was, was on our mind to do. AFPD officers attended the autopsies, transported evidence to the state crime lab. The crime scene photographs were developed. Potential witnesses were identified and interviews continued. I coordinated all the investigative actions and returned necessary media calls. Early in the morning, I was contacted by the special agent in charge of the Salt Lake Office of the FBI, Special Agent uh, Terry Knowles. He offered agents to form part of the, the task force. No one had seen the vehicle or the suspects, and we felt they had probably fled across straight state lines. Up to 20 FBI agents in various parts of the country were assigned to assist in the investigation. Initial meetings with FBI agents, the Utah County Sheriff, and local police departments were conducted. This was a county-wide effort by many of the agencies in Utah County. Information was shared, responsibilities assigned, and delegated. We learned that the Alpine Highland Police Department had a forced entry burglary at the home of Chloe Lowe. That name had come up the night before. So we instantly put together that, hey, this is probably related to Ron and Dan Lafferty. And so it was treated by that department 
with the same degree of concern that we had treated the, the homicide scene the night before. Uh, no one had been at home at the Chloe Lowe residence. They had all been as a family, grandkids, kids, a large family had all been out of town on vacation. I believe they were up at Bear Lake, but I could be corrected. Investigative activity and, and follow-up would continue every day from 8 a.m. until we ran out of leads or need for follow-up of the day. This continued until July 30th when the first major break occurred in the case. July 30th, Monday, approximately 9 p.m., uh, the Utah DPS had provided an aircraft and flew me down to uh, Page, Arizona. While my officers were interviewing a wide variety of witnesses, fundamental groups, people that the Lafferty's is associated with, I went down to interview a man and one of his wives by the name of Alex Joseph. He was the mayor of Big Water, and we had heard a possibility that Ron and Dan had stopped in there to see him before they had come back into Utah. And so I'd met, I found out that Ron and Dad had showed up there on the 13th of July and that uh, Ron and Dan tried to do some conversion of people in the town. And uh, Mr. Joseph and his wife, who I believe was the county attorney at that time, ordered the town marshal to escort them out of the, out of the city, out of the town. I was in the aircraft and we were flying back when I received a radio call that a message had come in from the Cheyenne Police Department up in Wyoming. They notified that they had located the Lafferty vehicle uh, that morning. Two suspects, one in the house and one in the car, were located and arrested without incident. The vehicle was impounded. I had dispatch advised them that I would be landing very shortly. I would make contact with uh, the county attorney, we would obtain what paperwork was necessary, and we would be en route to Cheyenne, Wyoming, first thing the next morning. I contacted Mr. Wooten, and he had already prepared warrants, paperwork. He arranged for a private aircraft, about an eight-passenger aircraft. They met us, and we took off at about 7 a.m. in the morning and flew to Cheyenne. We were met at the airport by investigators there. They said that... that uh, Two men had been arrested, and they had given me the names the night before. It was Ricky Knapp and Charles, who went by Chip Carnes. Carnes had relatives there in Cheyenne. Both of them had agreed to be extradited, so all we had to do was go in before the judge, have them waive their rights, and they were turned over to us early in the afternoon of that day. Uh, we arranged for their ve the vehicle that they had seized to be taped up. We called a wrecker from American Fork to come up and to take custody of that wrecker and to take it back to our department for processing. Uh, the Rick, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call them Knapp and Carnes. They were uh, transported out to our aircraft where we belted them in with uh, handcuffs to chains. We put leg cuffs on them. We separated them in the aircraft, one to the front and one to the back. And once we got airborne, Mr. Wooten, County Attorney Noel Wooten, had a, maybe it was Wayne Watson also, had a discussion with them and said, 
uh, you guys are in a lot of trouble. Uh, it would be advisable for you to cooperate and we'll work with your attorney. We'll do, we'll work something with you, but you're going to be charged with these murders. It would be best for you to cooperate at this point. They were read their rights. Both of them waived their rights and they were very willing to talk. They were two frightened individuals. I took one of the suspects, Detective Caldwell took the other, and we started conducting interviews. We got some critical and key information on that flight back. In brief, we learned the following. One, Ron and Dan had been on a two-month trip around the country. Ron was receiving revelations and calling himself a prophet. Dan believed that Ron was a prophet. They had first gone to Reno, where by gambling, God was going to give them money. That's what Ron and Dan believed. So they spent all their money on the tables and lost every penny. Oh, well. So they went out and got day jobs, and the next night they're back in. Lost some money. Next night, they're back in. And this went on for approximately 10 days that they stayed in Reno. During that time, the brothers met and befriended a female blackjack dealer. Ron got a revelation they needed to continue their travels. And so they did continue their travels, and Ron would often stay in the vehicle while Dan would go out and get day jobs and work to provide for food and gas. Ron said he needed to rest and commune with the Lord. They went to California, then to Arizona. The Lafferty's would sleep in their car and were contacted frequently by patrolling police officers, whom they hated. This was two months before the homicides. From there, they went to Nebraska, went to Nebraska, where they met a street person by the name of Ricky Knapp, low-level criminal. Knapp was street-level and taught them how to dine and dash, taught them how to steal and get by, take gasoline. They then went back to California with the three of them, and they met Carnes, who his vehicle had just died at a, a rest stop. He needed a ride, and they offered him to go, and he got in the car with them and went. So now there's four of them. They received a revelation that they were supposed to go talk to Alex Joseph. So they drove down, went into Alex Joseph's little town, and as you know, they were invited fairly quickly to leave. They left there, arriving back in uh, Provo, a week or two before the, the homicides. Uh, in Dan's journal specifically, he writes on the 13th that Dan had told them that Ron felt as though they needed to return to Utah with murder weapons in hand. When they tried to convert the people in the town, well, they were kicked out. Uh, from my notes, I now recollect that they... They arrived back in Provo three days before the homicide and stayed at their mother's house. While there, Ron and Dan sawed the barrel off of a Remington 870 pump shotgun, 12 gauge, shot, cut off the stock, cut the butt stock, and cut off the barrel. Uh, they picked up a 30-30 rifle owned by one of the brothers. They pur- purchased a wooden-handled. 10-inch fillet knife that Ron would carry in his boot. 
they also were aware that Dan kept a daily journal, and these revelations and journals were kept in a briefcase that Dan had. The next, the night before the homicides, Ron and Dan, Knapp and Carnes, held a, a meeting and discussed the murders. They, they knew they were going to do it. The following morning, they got up and they drove to American Fork. They arrived sometime in the afternoon, three o'clock, give or take. Dan got out, went to the front door, screen door, opened it, knocked on the door, and nobody answered. Through our investigation, we determined that most likely Erica was playing in the kiddie pool and Brenda was hanging out the laundry. They left and drove around town for a while. Ron and Dan were talking back and forth. Now, this is coming from Knapp and Carnes. And they're saying, we know she's there. I feel like we ought to go back. So they went back 15 minutes away, maybe, and they're back in the driveway again. Knapp and Carnes remained in the car, and they could hear and see what took place at the front door. Dan knocked again, and this time Brenda answered. Dan asked for a rifle that Alan had that belonged to Ron or Dan, and Brenda told him no. Dan forced his way into the residence, and the door slammed shut. Brenda, clearly audible, was screaming and begging for her baby's life. She was promised to do what they wanted her to do. Dan was beating Brenda, and she was fighting for her life and the life of her daughter. Either Knapp or Carnes told Ron that he better get in and help Dan because it sounded like Brenda was kicking his... Ron went to the door, tried to get in, but the door was blocked by Brenda and Dan, who were fighting right behind the door. Ron put his shoulder to the door and forced it open and went in. Brenda continued to scream, and the sound of a violent assault was clear to the two in the car. Brenda went silent. They could still hear Erica in the background crying and saying, Mommy, Mommy, Ma, and she stopped. After under 10 minutes, the baby stopped crying, and Ron and Dan came back to the vehicle, having exited out through the back sliding patio door and around to the vehicle, which was parked towards the front of the driveway. Ron's pants, Levi's, from his knees down, had a lot of blood spray on them. They were wearing cowboy boots. The front of Dan's T-shirt was blood-soaked, very noticeably. As they drove away, Ron said to Dan, this is quoting Knapp and Carnes, I can't believe it. I killed the bee. He then said to Dan, Thanks for doing the baby. I couldn't do it. Dan said, No problem. It was easy. The spirit was with me. Ron and Dan had gone into Brenda's Ron and Dan had gone to Brenda's apartment first because she and Erica were the first one listed on a death revelation, a removal revelation. The next person listed was Chloe Lowe. They proceeded to Chloe's house. Chloe Lowe was hated by Ron. She had been supportive of Ron's ex-wife, Diana, during the divorce and excommunication. 
She had encouraged Diana to leave and move to Florida, which she did. Ron hated Diana. Arrival at Chloe Lowe's residence, according to Knapp and Carnes. They lived, the Lowe's lived in Highland. Carnes stayed out at the end of the driveway with a 30-30 rifle to, to keep watch. The other three went to the residence and knocked. There was no answer, so they kicked the door in. Miraculously, the entire Lowe family, numbering approximately 30 people, children to adults, were out of town on vacation. Had they been home, many, if not all, would have been killed. They had the shotgun, they had the knife, they had the wherewithal, they had the anger. They stole a few item, uh, items of value and left. They then drove to President Richard Stowe's house in Highland. He was on the list, and the reason he was on it was because he was the church authority responsible for presiding at the excommunication of Ron Lafferty. He didn't like the church. He didn't like Richard Stowe. Stowe and his family were home, he and his children. However, Ron and Dan missed the turn. I think Ron was driving. He missed the turn onto Stowe's street. The brothers were big believers in being guided by the Spirit and decided that since they had missed the street, apparently, God did not want Stowe to die. So they drove on out of town. They proceeded to Wendover, Utah. Wendover, Wyoming. I mean, Wendover, Nevada. As they arrived in town, they were stopped by an officer for a broken taillight. Dan had the shotgun in the back seat with him. He was still had blood covered bloody t-shirts on. Ron still had the same pants on. The officer did not approach their car. He just sat in his car. Ron got out, walked back, and talked to the officer. The officer said, get your taillight fixed. Ron said, yes, sir, right away. He went back and got in the car and drove away. The officer never left his car. Apparently, about 15 minutes after he had stopped the car, uh, the attempt to locate was broadcast throughout the state, surrounding states, but it did not click in his mind that car and the broadcast, so no notification was made. They checked into a motel room, the four of them. Ron and Dad Dan changed their clothes and washed the blood out uh, in, the, in the tub. They said they were hungry and went to eat at a casino. Knapp and Karn said they weren't hungry and would stay in the room. Knapp and Carnes told us that they were absolutely terrified for their lives. They had observed Ron and Dan's actions and attitudes. They believed that Ron could get another revelation anytime, and they would be next. So as soon as Ron and Dan went out and they were out of sight, Knapp and Carnes loaded everything up inside that apartment, everything that belonged to Ron and Dan, briefcase, contents, bloody clothes, weapons, put it in the car. They had the car keys. They drove out of town and headed north towards Jackpot, Nevada. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that motel room when Ron and Dan walked in and observed that everything was gone. They only had what they had in their pockets. That was it. No wallets, nothing. While traveling, traveling along the road to Jackpot, 
one of the two came across the knife wrapped in a towel. So they wrapped that up and they opened the window and slung that out before they got to jackpot. Uh, When they got to jackpot, they threw the wet clothing into a dumpster with the rest of the material, keeping Dan's briefcase, uh, keeping Dan's journals and copies of about 100 revelations. They headed to Cheyenne, Wyoming, where Carnes had relatives. When they reached Palisades Reservoir on the Wyoming-Idaho border, they stopped at a scenic turnout. They got out, went to the guardrail, and threw that briefcase as far as they could over the hill, down into the bushes, and down towards the water. They then, perse- they then, they then proceeded to uh, Cheyenne, arriving there late on July 28th or early on the 29th. The police happened upon the vehicle, distinctive, parked in front of the residence. They took a stakeout on it, and they prepared to assault the house at first dawn. So they hit there about 5 o'clock in the morning. Knapp was taken into custody while sleeping in the car. Carnes was inside the house and was taken into custody. We arrived back in Utah on the evening of the 31st, having obtained absolutely critical information. Interviews with the two suspects would continue over the course of the next few days. August the 2nd, Wednesday. Early in the morning, search for physical evidence. The task force was meeting... The task force met, and the information obtained from Carnes and Knapp were given to all members of the task force. The FBI agents volunteered to go to Windover, handle the motel room there, and then to go to Jackpot and check for the knife alongside and check the dumpsters. I sent two of my officers, uh, Lieutenant Dave Cowden and uh, Corporal Larry uh, Burns, to uh, Palisades Reservoir with instructions to go to those scenic turnouts, get out, go down, and bring me that briefcase. They all proceeded out. August 3rd and 4th, 1984. There are so many interviews taking place with Lafferty brothers, Lafferty members, friends, neighborhood neighbors, members of various groups that the Lafferty's are associated with down in southern Utah County. Uh, we received hundreds of telephonic leads. Each one was followed up on. Search warrants were executed at residences where the Lafferty's were known to have stayed in the prior time before. Discovery of the death revelation. Big happening. One warrant produced a significant piece of evidence. In a bedroom that Ron had stayed in was a clothes closet. Some of his clothes were still there. In the pocket of a flannel shirt owned by Ron was found a folded up page from a yellow legal pad. Standard copy. The document in Ron's handwriting was the infamous death revelation. They would subsequently release that death revelation to the media through their attorneys. So this is a Xerox copy of the full-size one that was shrunk down and put on the uh, put in the newspaper. I'll read you the death revelation now. Thus saith the Lord unto my servants, the prophets, it is my will and commandment that ye remove the following individuals in order that my work might go forward. 
for they have truly become obstacles in my path, and I will not allow my work to be stopped. First thy brother's wife Brenda and her baby, then Chloe Lowe and then Richard Stowe, and it is my will that they be removed in rapid succession, and that an example be made of them in order that others might see the fate of those who fight against the true saints of God. And it is my will that this matter be taken care of as soon as possible, and I will prepare a way for my instrument to be delivered, and instructions be given unto my servant Todd. And it is my will that he show great care in his duties, for I have raised him up and prepared him for this important work. And is he not like unto my servant Porter Rockwell? And great blessings await him, if he will do my will. For I am the Lord thy God, and have control over all things. Be still, and know that I am with thee. Even so, amen. You might wonder who Todd was. He was a member of a group that was called the School of the Prophets. I'm going to address them here momentarily. And the death revelation, that was written a couple of months before the homicides and was presented to the School of the Prophets. I'll talk about that in just a minute. This document, though, was proof of the intent of Ron and Dan and the danger people were in. The Stowe and Lowe families had been provided with armed protection. Diana Lafferty and her family were being protected by police in Florida. Due to the threats Ron and Dan had made against leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, church security had been briefed, and they provided enhanced security for selected leaders while the Lafferty's were being sought. August the 4th, 1984, Saturday morning. FBI agents called in and reported that they had located the murder weapon, wrapped in a towel just as Knapp at Carnes had said, in the approximate location. They were unable to locate any evidence in the dumpster and they, as they had been emptied. They turned the knife and towel over to me and it was booked into evidence. It was later taken to the crime lab to be tested. I have brought with me a knife that is extremely similar to the one they had. I don't have that knife because it was taken apart and processed for blood and human blood was found on in the wooden grips. But this knife is the same size, the same style. It's a fillet knife. It had a dark wooden handle. It was just rounded like that instead of having these edges. This knife, if you took it and placed it in the drapes at the back door and drew it like this, the imprint of that exact size blade would have been left on the drapes. I received a call from Lieutenant uh, Cowden and Corporal Burns. They had located the briefcase in the location given by Knapp and Carnes and were returning with it to American Fork as quickly as they could. August the 4th and 5th, Saturday and Sunday. The community, American Fork, Pleasant Grove, Linden, all through Utah County, Highland Alpine especially, they were, they were in fear and sorrow because of the tragic events. I was informed that the entire Highland Stake was participating in a fast for the timely capture of Ron and Dan and for the safety of potential victims. I received the briefcase and accessed the journals, accessed Dan's journal. I saw that he wrote in it nearly every day. In great detail, he described their two to three month travel activities and the persons that they had met with contact information and addresses. Also contained in the, brief, in the briefcase were copies of numerous uh, 
handwritten and typewritten revelations that stretched back over a period of months. Now, much has been said about Dan and Ron being members of the School of the Prophets. Not so much. The School of the Prophets was, was organized by a, name, a man named Bob Crossfield, who called himself the Prophet Onias. He lived in southern Utah County. He and a number of friends liked to get together and discuss the mysteries of God and the kingdom. Some of his groups may have been, but most were not members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that whole group was very happy to, so to speak, fly under the radar. Ron and Dan always sustained each other, and another of their brothers, who also attended, became a significant voting block. It was accepted by the group that revelation could be received by any members, and if two or more people agreed that it was a good revelation, then it it was accepted by the group. Dan tried to assume leadership of the group, and it was not well received due to he and Dan's radical views. What got them outed from the group was when Dan brought in a revelation, which I just read to you, and he brought in an old-fashioned safety razor like men used to shave with. It was fancy. It was an antique. And he wanted to uh, dedicate and sanctify and anoint that instrument to be used to carry out the revelation. Well, this caused great consternation in the School of the Prophets. In fact, the prophet Onias was so concerned that he swore out a statement and had it notarized by a notary public saying, Ron and Dan are crazy. They want to kill people. And I'm afraid that I'm going to be one of them. We obtained that notary. But they did not. He never gave that to law enforcement. They never reported it to anybody. It was just kept in the group. Contents of the briefcase. That afternoon and evening and through most of the night, I stayed up and I read all the contents of the briefcase. I read the journal. I read the revelations. I organized them. And I drew several conclusions. The first was a Ron's Revelation, which was written in the format and language of scriptures in the Doctrine and Covenants. They were nothing more than instruments used to manipulate people who had some knowledge of Doctrine and Covenants and the way those revelations are documented therein, or who had a church background. In the revelations directed at many of his family members and associates, he instructed them in the voice of a prophet of God to perform certain activities that Ron wanted accomplished. So when Todd was mentioned, Todd was a member of the School of Prophets, and Todd happened to have a dream one night that he was a mighty avenging angel from the God, for, for God. And so Ron jumped on that really quick, wrote his name in the Revelation, and when Todd was given a copy of that, he said, not me. So the 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 group broke up, and uh, they were scared. He was a master manipulator and preyed upon the feelings and beliefs of those he purported to care for. He really did not believe he was a prophet. You could tell from the writing. But Dan, Dan believed what Ron was saying. And Dan, for a long time, believed that Ron was a prophet of God. The second conclusion, based upon the information Dan's journal, was that they were probably in Reno. 
It had been where they were heading when they lost their car, and they always tried to follow the inspiration that Ron first had, or the initial decision they had made. I felt strongly that they were there, as they had a support system of acquaintances that they could approach for help, and they knew how to survive in a gaming town where you get two-for-ones on just about everything. I was convinced it was very important that I and FBI agents go to Reno the next day and make contact with all of these people that were listed in the journal. August the 6th, morning, early. We arrived in Reno by aircraft. I detected Caldwell and I. Uh, we met the FBI agents. We contacted everyone who Dad, Dan named in his journal. Significantly, we met with and interviewed the female blackjack dealer. She said she had not heard or seen from Dan and was not aware of the homicide. I showed her pictures of the victims, and I said, you could well become a victim here. If you hear from them or see them, don't go with them. Immediately notify the FBI, and she was visibly frightened and concerned. She agreed to help. When there was no one left to interview, Late in the evening, we took the last flight back into Salt Lake, returning. August the 7th, Tuesday, my birthday. I'm about ready to get a birthday present. Best birthday present I've ever had. 10 a.m. approximately. We're in a multi-agency task force, and a phone call comes in, and it's Special Agent in Charge Terry Knowles up in Salt Lake. He said that Ron and Dan had been taken into custody that morning in Reno. He said the blackjack dealer had gone into work to cash her check. When she walked in, she saw the Lafferty brothers walking up the stairs to the buffet. Had she been 10 seconds later, she would not have seen them going up the stairs. She immediately notified, notified casino security who called the FBI. Ron and Dan had told Knapp and Carnes that they would never be taken alive, and the FBI was aware of their statement. Six FBI agents responded to the casino, approached them unseen, and took them into aggressively into custody without incident. Some people say, we just got a lucky break when we got the four suspects. Others would say we got breaks because we aggressively worked every detail of the case. I say, with my faith background, that a series of miracles occurred. Something I had not mentioned was after the initial walkthrough, I was alone in the residence by myself, and I went into the master bedroom and I knelt down, and I told Heavenly Father, I needed help. This, this was big. I had experience, but this was really big, and I needed an extra measure of insight and wisdom. And I prayed for that and for the safety of people. It was a short prayer, but I can tell you it was heartfelt because my attention was fully focused. The miracles that I think occurred. First miracle, the Lowe family was not home. No one was hurt when their home was invaded. Number two, the Stowe family was not hurt due to the mass Lafferty's missing a turn. Three, no one else was harmed by the suspects while they were on the run. Four, Knapp and Carnes were located in a timely fashion. Five, key evidence was discovered in time to pinpoint the Lafferty's. Six, 
a key witness in a very narrow time frame, saw the Lafferty's inform police. I believe that some of the miracles came as a result of prayer. Also, the Highland Stake held a fast for the safety of their members and a rapid apprehension of the Lafferty's. Ron and Dan were arrested within 48 hours of the fast and prayers, which started on Saturday. I do believe in miracles. I don't believe in luck. The county attorney, his chief deputy, Detective Caldwell, and I made arrangements to fly out that afternoon to interview the Lafferty's. Upon our arrival, we were transported by the FBI to the county jail where we interviewed Ron and Dan. Initial interviews. Ron didn't want to speak with us. When I first entered the cell with Dan, he asked me if I remembered him. I told him, I don't. I know of you, and I've learned a lot about you from Knapp and Carnes. He reminded me that when I was a patrolman at BYU, he had evaded me on a motorcycle and had dumped the motorcycle down in the bushes on Mazer Hill. I remembered. I found that abandoned motorcycle, got the serial number, tracked it down, went to the Lafferty residence, saw Dan there, recognized him, and issued him a citation for the evading. So I guess I did. I was the first one to give him a ticket. I told him that Knapp and Carnes had been very forthcoming about the details of the crime. He was very guarded about the case, and he wanted to philosophize about church doctrine. When he would not provide any pertinent information, and near the end of my interview, I looked at him and I said, Dan, I can understand how you might have been angry with Brenda, an adult woman. I can understand that perhaps that led to her murder, your anger. What I can't understand is how you could kill Erica. She was just a baby, and she was innocent. And he said, Chief, are you a member of the church? Right? I said, I was. And he said, If the Lord commanded you to kill someone, would you do it? I replied, If I knew that it was God, and God wanted somebody removed... I could do it. He then said, There's your answer. He believed the Ron was a prophet and he was following God's revelation through revelation. So he was he was prepared to do whatever Ron asked him to do. He would later try to get me to testify to this conversation when he was on trial for homicide. The prosecutor Wayne Watson objected, saying what Chief Johnson would or would not do is not admissible in this case. The judge sustained his objection, and Dan rested his case. Background. They had motive, intent, op- and opportunity for the homicides. One, Ron and Dan had anti-government, anti-authority records and attitude. Two, if one was having trouble, the other would always back the first one up. Three, When Dan was excommunicated, Ron stood by him. Ron wrote letters challenging that decision. That that started him on the road to excommunication. Four, when Dan was charged and sent to prison, Ron supported him. Five, Ron hated anyone who supported his wife. Six, I'm sorry. Ron hated anyone who supported his wife during their divorce to include Chloe Loa and Brendan Lafferty. Seven, Richard Stope resided during Ron's excommunication proceedings. Eight, Ron made a statement 
they took away my children. That would be Brenda. That would be Chloe. That would be Richard Stoll. That would be anybody that had anything to do with his divorce and excommunication. Therefore, anyone involved, including Erica or their children, could be removed. Nine, it was Ron's hate and anger that motivated the killings. Ten, Dan loved his oldest brother and believed that he was a prophet and was receiving revelations from God. August the 19th, 4 p.m., after appropriate judicial proceedings in Reno, Ron and Dan were turned over to the state of Utah. Deeming that Ron and Dan were too dangerous to be transported back by vehicle or commercial airlines, the state of Utah provided a 10-passenger aircraft for the extradition. Detective Caldwell, myself, four uniformed American Fork police officers accompanied by the county attorney flew to Reno to extradite them. I had two officers assigned to each suspect. We were very formal. We, I told them they were not to trust the Lafferty's at all, and they were to watch them constantly. The brothers were handcuffed to belt chains, and their feet were secured by foot cuffs and attached to the seat frame of the of the aircraft. I know that's not what would be a, a, acceptable by the airline industry, but that plane belonged to the state of Utah, and those boys were not going anyplace but back to Utah. They were transported to the Provo Airport. We made no attempt to interview them. It was just silence. We arrived there at 10 p.m. A large media presence was waiting. They were taken to the Utah County Jail and each booked on six first-degree capital felonies, as had Knapp and Carnes been charged. Suicide attempt by Ron and uh, the court proceedings. The county attorney had a intended to try them together. However, Ron attempted suicide on December 29, 1984, while in his jail cell. He hung something, I think it was his bed sheets, around the bars and went down, and he nearly succeeded. He was in bad shape. He was observed by a jailer, and they performed resuscitation, and they got him back. The investigation and court proceedings would proceed for the better part of two years, Dan was first tried and found guilty. He was sentenced to life without parole. Ron was treated and evaluated at the state mental hospital. After a number of months, he was found competent to stand trial. He was found guilty and sentenced to be executed. While in the state prison, Dan was in general population. Ron was on death row. Uh, Ron and Dan had a falling out and began to hate each other. Ron passed away of natural causes on death row on November 11th, 2019. Dan is still serving his sentence at the Utah State Prison as of this moment. July 1984, let me take you back. Promise made by the American Fork officers. During the first days after the murders, I met with all of my officers in a room, and we agreed that none of us would ever write a book about the homicides for personal gain. We agreed to honor Brenda and Erica's memories and support the Wright family to the best of our abilities. I believe my officers kept that agreement, and I continue to honor that promise. That's why I'm here today. Now, I often pray for the safety of our law enforcement officers who stand between us and the evil actions 
of people like those that we have discussed this evening. That would be the end of my report. Do you have any questions you would ask of me? Yes, I actually have a, a few questions. Now, first of all, um, uh, the name of one of the officers, I, I think you had used one name, but it might be another name. I had misspoken about Corporal Larry Burnham, not Burns, Burnham. Okay. I've been watching too many mass shows. <laughs> Larry Burnham. Okay, very good. Thank you. Um, I, I, I do have some other questions. You know, it's been reported that some of the officers um, had dreams about uh, about the murders and even including the dreamt of bloody hands. Is there anything to that? Yes, there is. In 1984, the aftercare of officers who go to crime scenes like that, all we did was hug on each other and kind of talk with each other, but everybody kind of manned up and the feelings were there. There was tears shed. There were people upset. There were officers that cried. But we didn't have the resources and knowledge that we have today to take care of officers who handle this kind of scene. And I feel bad about that. But yes, there is truth that um, uh, my officers and I were personally deeply affected by this. The person that had the dream or the nightmare was actually me. And I told my officers about it during the course of decompression. It was either the first night that we, first afternoon that we got three or four hours of sleep or the the night following when we got a little bit more sleep. But I was asleep and in my mind, I could see the, the, the ceiling above me and there was drops of blood that were falling down from the ceiling and they were landing on my hands. And I woke up taking my hands going like this. And then I realized that I'd been having a nightmare. But I'm the only one that I know that had a dream about blood dropping from the ceiling. But I know how sensitive my officers were. They Most all of them had little children. I had the 15-month-old baby that looked just like Erica. This was a traumatic a traumatic situation for my good officers, and they were good officers. Uh, most of them would would have been members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. A couple were not active. There might have been one or two that were not members of the church. I was. Detective Caldwell was. Detective Finn Lason was. The part-time female officer at the crime scene, she was. But nobody's faith was shook by this. We recognized them for what they were. They were mentally sick criminals. Yeah. Thank you. So, of course, a number of people think that this was um, a ritual killing, uh, given the, um, well, basically cutting ear to ear. Um did you or any other investigators see this as a ritual killing? Not at all. There was no ceremony type of thing about the crime scene. The only thing that puts a religious tinge on this is that revelation that Ron had 
about dedicating that instrument and removing people. That occurred two or three months before the homicide. Uh, I don't remember seeing anything that would have caused me to consider that to be a ritualistic killing. And uh, for the past, oh, for about 15, 20 years of my professional career, I taught across the country on Satanism, witchcraft, voodoo, ritualistic killing. And so I clearly understand what ritualistic killing was. And that killing was not. They beat her because she resisted. They strangled her with the, the cord in a hopes to kill her. You could clearly see three bruised circles around her necks, two to three. When she continued to fight and scream, they smothered her. Apparently, that did not kill her. And so they had brought that knife, which was not the instrument that they wanted to dedicate. It was a knife of convenience that they had purchased just the day or two before. That knife was not set apart. It was not consecrated. It was not dedicated. It was an, it was simply a way to make sure that she was dead. The term ear to ear is a term that I used because in fact, Brenda's throat was cut from just below the ear to just below the ear. One smooth, long cut. Uh, which certainly did kill her. The autopsy, the medical examiner said, the beating probably would not have killed her. The strangulation and smothering could have killed her, but the the blood uh, let from the, the knife wound certainly did kill her. I think she was alive when her throat was cut because if you remember Knapp and Karn said that Ron's pant legs from the knee on down were pretty well blood covered. They then went back into the bedroom with Erica and they loved that little baby, they said. They didn't want to beat the baby, so Dan put his hand on top of the baby's head and simply used the knife in the same fashion that had been used on Brenda. We believe that Ron killed Brenda and Dan killed Erica. No, no temple reference, nothing there. And I have been through the temple and I saw nothing at the crime scene that would cause me to go, oh, this was related to the church. Not at all. All right. Thank you. Uh, so I think that you've explained well that, uh, the, that there wasn't a relationship between the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the American Fork Police Department, other than some of the police officers were members of the church. The, you didn't have any, um, in, there was no influence by the church over how you ran your investigation or anything else. Not at all. As I said, because some of the leadership of the church were threatened, President Richard Stowe, LDS Church Security was notified and briefed on the case so that they could take whatever action they deemed appropriate. The only people I spoke with there would be uh, a person on a comparable level to a, a sergeant or a lieutenant who took the information, and then they did what they did. I was never contacted by anybody in the LDS Church okay. whatsoever. Thank you. Now, 
uh, with the various officers in the uh, in the police department, as well as when you were visiting with people, or better yet, when you were interrogating the possible suspects, uh, did you refer to them as brother and sister, as you would, you know, if you were in a church setting? Not at all. I never heard it. Uh, I would suspect that if somebody was talking to Richard Stowe, they may or may not have referred to him as President Stowe, which was his ecclesiastical title. Mm -hmm. But we did not commonly or even infrequently ever refer to each other as brother, sister, this, that. We were a professional law enforcement agency, and I was known to be just a little bit military and formal. I was always chief. My officers were always addressed by their first name or by their title. Uh, we did not refer to each other as brother this and brother that. Right. And when we interviewed people, we don't bring up religion as a twist to get them to uh, to confess. Uh, I was... That was forbidden when I worked at BYU Police Department. It just seemed a wise idea. We dealt with the facts of the crime and not the religion of the person who was involved. The Lafferty's brought religion into it. We didn't. Okay. And speaking of the Lafferty's, uh, obviously you had plenty of interaction with uh, Dan and Ron after you arrested them. What kind of interaction did you have with other members of the Lafferty family? We had a lot of interaction with Alan. He was one of our primary witnesses. Uh, interviewed all of the Lafferty brothers and the Lafferty sisters and the mother, but I did not conduct those interviews. They were conducted by task force members, uh, primarily from my department, uh, we had lots of interviews with them, had lots of information. And based upon our reports, now also I would mention, we also interviewed Bob Crossfield, all the members of the School of the Prophets. That's where we got that uh, affidavit that he signed. Right. Uh, we interviewed them at great detail. All of our reports, which were comprehensive, were turned over to the county attorney's office. Mr. Wooten and Mr. Watson determined who they were going to charge and what they were going to charge with. But anybody that could have been a co-conspirator to the murders was looked at very carefully by the judicial system. The charges that were brought against Knapp and Carnes, Ron and Dan, were what the county attorney felt best that they could prove, and therefore those were the people that were charged. Uh, we were very comfortable with the decision of Mr. Witten and Mr. Watson. All right. Regarding the Lafferty family, I realized that uh, Dan ran for county sheriff and you had had some interaction with him, as you mentioned, um, previous to all of this. But as for the family itself, have you heard of the Lafferty family um, by reputation or rumor or anything else? Their father, for example, who was a chiropractor, had you heard anything about the Lafferty family? No, the, the Lafferty family became known to me from Dan's activities, and then Ron supporting Dan 
through his trials, mm-hmm. and then the evasion, and then the attempted homicide on the police officer that, right. that Dan was charged with. So the Lafferty's kind of rose to our our awareness, but the father Lafferty, the mother Lafferty, the other brothers, the sisters, they were inconsequential. They were not famous. They were not well-known. They were common people. Uh, The Lafferty's were hardworking family. Uh, Father Lafferty had some pretty strong political views. He may or may not have given them to his children, but uh, the Lafferty family, they were victimized also. Ron and Dan have no excuse. The Lafferty family were victimized. They're they're children. The children of of Dan and Ron, can you imagine? There's, There's more victims to this case than simply the ones who died. Did I answer your question? You did, absolutely. And, and that's so true. The, um, the, that's the way it usually is. Not only the uh, children of the victims, if, there's, you know, if there are children living, but the, children's of the children of the perpetrator, etc. Yeah, they, they all, they're victims, um, you know, in, in the great scheme of things. Um, so you mentioned um, having... Uh, your task force interviewing the various fundamentalists that um, that Ron and Dan had associated with, particularly Alex Joseph uh, and his wives down in Big Water. But uh, there are fundamentalists within um, Utah County. W- were you aware of them before this? And did had you uh, been aware of any possible connection of the Lafferty's to fundamentalists other than Bob Crossfield? Not at all. Until after the homicides took place, we became aware. They are a quiet group. They keep themselves. They want to stay under the the radar. And Dan and Ron were not under the radar. Right. Okay. And you've already uh, really talked about um, uh, Bob Crossfield in the School of the Prophets, which was excellent overview. Um, Do you have any other comments about... uh, Crossfield or the School of the Prophets. Uh, never heard another word out of them after the trials and so forth. I understand some moved out of state. Uh, members of the of that group were scared of Ron and Dan. When Ron and Dan were on the loose, they didn't know what Ron and Dan would do. Knapp and Carnes had very good reason to be scared of Ron and Dan. They were capable of just about anything. Yeah. And this is a great segue into another question that I have. And that is um, the Lafferty's extreme behavior and then obviously the murders that took place. Um, Do you believe that in any way were they caused by the teachings or the doctrines of the LDS church? Or was this basically Dan and Ron? You can't remove the fact that both of them were return missionaries. They had held positions in their in their church. They had a lot of the same gospel knowledge that you and I would have. They had built been through the temple ceremonies. But I just do not believe that 
anything that they did was as a direct result of gospel doctrine. Hate that Ron had for the people who cost him his wife and his family was the in, intent behind the, the murders. It was not to do a ritual. It was not to fulfill a prophecy that, that never came up. Did that answer your question, or do you need to restate that again? No, nope, I think that's good. I, um, I, I think you've explained that. Um, one other question that I have. What impact did these murders have on the community of American Fork, um, the people, the residents in Utah Valley, Utah? Was, was there any long-term impact for really, quite frankly, such a brutal and horrendous um, murders, uh, two of them? For the two weeks that they were on the run, this county was afraid. They didn't know where they were. We didn't know where they were. When the word went out that they had been apprehended, when the word went out that the two unknown suspects were arrested, there was a sigh of relief. When the word went out that Ron and Dan were in custody, there was like a wave. You could just feel it going out from the people because there's not very many people in Utah County that didn't know someone who was somehow involved knew a Lafferty, knew a member in the School of the Prophets, knew an officer that was working the case. This county and this state were invested. They were scared. They were supportive. They were anxious. And they were prayerfully grateful when when all four men were taken off the street. Everybody in Utah County was affected. And to today, to today, people will still get tears in their eyes when they remember and talk about this. All right. Well, thank you. Do you have any other comments that you'd like to make? or Just in closing, I have tried for 38 years since the homicide to be supportive of the Wright family, and the Lafferty family. Uh, Sharon Wright Weeks has been a rock star as it comes to standing up for correctness, justice, truth. I understand that you folks are going to interview her and talk to her about the, the family. She is wonderful. What a great lady. I would listen very carefully to what she has to say. She has a lot of wisdom that she's earned in a very hard fashion. The Wright family were dignified through this whole thing. They have my greatest respect. Someday, I look forward to looking Brenda in the eye and looking Eric in the eye and tell them we did the best we could. We had the privilege of serving you. Sorry about what happened. That's great. Thank you. Thank you.